Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Thomas Hoke. I am one of the pastors here at Parkview. Hey, and it is my great pleasure to be here with you, despite the rain and uh, some flooding, even. Uh, so warm. It's so wonderful to be here with you and have the privilege to preach to you about the love of God today. And I thought to begin with, I thought it'd be nice to have, do I need to move this up? I thought it'd be nice to have a little bit of a flashback to 10th grade for me and get a little bit vulnerable too because I thought I would share with you the two words that for me, when I was in 10th grade, a sophomore in high school, some of you aren't there yet, but these were the two words that struck the most fear into my heart when I was 16. And they were geometric proofs. That's right. Okay? Now, if you don't know what geometric proofs are, I just want to come for you because the truth is I don't know either. And that's actually the whole point of the story. Uh, I'll never forget one day in class, Mr. T, I, I can still picture exactly what he looked like in exactly this moment. Um, I had completely spaced off in the middle of class. Don't do it. Um, but as he was explaining geometric proofs, and again, I, don't, I still don't know what they mean. And as, as he was talking and as he spaced out, I was brought back to attention quite abruptly when he said to me, Thomas Hoke, well, my name wasn't Thomas Hoke back then, that's a longer story, but why don't you come up here, and just as I have done, you do it. Oh boy, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I hope you can almost feel the pit in your stomach of, oh no. Uh, and, the, and the walk up to the board that takes about 15 minutes or so, and you take the chalk, and you sort of have two options. You can either uh, wing it, which is what I did that day, and probably why I still don't know what geometric proofs are. Or you can do the wise thing and say, you know what, Mr. T, I know that you just told me to do just as you did, but I do not know what you just did. So I cannot do just as you did. Well, this uh, is a significant point, because in John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says to his disciples, just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. Now, in that passage, he doesn't exactly explain what does that love look like. And so if we can't go out into the world with a definition of love that isn't founded on the way that Jesus loved us, otherwise we'll just end up with sort of, sort of a cultural version of love, something that's not really based on the truth. And so we need to take a step back and say, how has he loved his church? If we're supposed to do just as he has done, we need to be like I should have been in Mr. T's class and say, hold on, hold on, hold on. How is it that you just did that? Um, especially because geometric proofs are some kind of dark magic. Sorry, math teachers. It's true. Anyhow, so we're, we're continuing today in our DNA series where we're talking about what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus. And if we're going to be a church that makes disciples of Jesus, we need to know what does a disciple look like. And so we've, we've been talking about the traits of a disciple. How does God's love, how does the truth of God, when it comes into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, how does it express itself? And so this week, we're moving on to the third trait of a disciple, and that is that disciples of Jesus love God's people. And therefore, the point of our message today will be that to love God's people, we must pour out to others the same love that Christ has poured out for us. To love God's people, that is to express this trait we're talking about today of a disciple, we must pour out to others the same love that Christ has poured out for us. The Apostle Paul's application of Christ-like love to marriage in Ephesians 5 is going to be the lens through which we examine how Christ loves the church. And it offers us four key insights into what Christ-like love looks like and therefore how our love ought to look like 
toward others. Let us pray that the Lord will give us insight. Lord Jesus, uh, we ask you, we go to the Father in your name and ask, Lord, that you would pour the love of the Father into our hearts as you promised in Romans 5. Otherwise, we are not going to be able to do this. We're not going to be able to love one another as we ought. We will not muster up enough love to please you. We will not muster up enough love to change ourselves or to change others. We need you, and we need you in this moment to come by your spirit and give us vision, give us ears to hear, give me words to speak that are yours and and not mine, but yours, Lord, we ask. Come in a special way now. Amen. So I want to back up and go back. So in John 13, 34 through 35, I don't want to step on toes because this is actually the passage that Doug Fern is going to be preaching next week, but this is where I'm sort of picking up from. So it says, a new commandment I give to you. You don't need to flip there, but a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, he says, if you love one another. So the question is, as I, as I said, what does that mean? Just as he has loved, how are we to love one another? Well, the tough thing is that when we read the Bible, it's not as if we're reading a theological textbook where you can sort of look up, okay, let's go to the G's, God's love, or to, that'd probably be in the L's, God's love, and then find, okay, love equals, and then a very simple statement, yes, about 12 words or less, good dictionary definition of God's love. That's not really what we have. What we have is more like what, what you might call in these, these days something like a case study, so especially you see this in the letters to the New Testament, Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, all these in the New Testament, is something like a case study where the apostles, they see issues in the church, something that's going on, it might be something good, something bad, but what they do is they apply the gospel truth to that area. And so Ephesians 5, it may sound to you and uh, to me like a passage that's mainly about marriage. Uh, I'll read the first few words here, oriented. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And give. You've probably heard this passage before if, you have, if you're familiar with the Bible. However, I want to say that this is not a passage primarily about marriage. This is primarily a passage about the gospel. And Paul specifically says in this passage, as we'll see, that marriage is an analogy for the gospel. The relationship between husband and wife is analogous to the relationship between Christ and his church. Love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So by sort of isolating this side of it, Christ and the church, we can look at what what does it mean that Christ loves the church. And therefore, it's only a hop, skip, and a jump to loving one another as Christ loves the church. So let me read Ephesians 5, which will really be our text for the day. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." Now, as I said, we see four key things, four key insights that Paul gives us into how the gospel changes the way that we love one another. By looking at Christ's love for the church, we can see this. First thing that we see is that Christ-like love knows others. Christ-like love knows others. Now, this is one, I have to admit, this is really, this is something that is assumed by Paul. It's something implied. So when I point down here, I'm not going to be able to say, look at the text where he says, husbands, know your wives. And I think the reason is, 
Have you ever heard of a husband who did not know his wife? Probably not. What's her name? I forget. That's not, not really, right? That'd be very strange. And of course, uh, this is assumed, and it's probably strange for me to point that out, but it's because we find ourselves in Western culture very much steeped in an individualistic mindset, about, especially about religion. We tend to privatize. We tend, we tend to have this thought. All that's really necessary for me to be a Christian is I just have me, my Bible, and Jesus, and that can be my whole religious experience. That can be my whole thing. And yet, if we're going to show the trait of loving God's people, as we talked about, we must know. We must know one another. That's because love happens in concrete terms. We can't love the idea of a person. We can't love the, the idea of the person who's sitting next to us. We must love that person themselves. And I just want to back up and say, this is not, I'm not saying this sort of as just a sociological point or just sort of a, a, a logical point that comes from the text. This is, okay. How does, does Jesus get to know us? Yes. Before Jesus traded his crown in heaven for a cross, he first traded his throne for a trough where he was born. Hebrews 2.17 tells us, he had to be made like his siblings, that is, you and I, in every respect. In becoming a human, Jesus knows us better than we, than we even know ourselves. True love knows others. In fact, Jesus pays, pays a high price to know us. He becomes human. Now, um, I don't know if you've ever gotten a piece of mail like this. This actually came yesterday, which confirmed that this illustration was of, of the Lord. Uh, <laughs> yes. But you get this piece of mail, and I, I'm sorry if you're hearing in marketing, because I'm going to pick on you for a second. Uh, but this, this piece of mail, it's addressed to me, Mr. Thomas Hoke. Most mail I get doesn't say Mr., but it's got my address. And they've even gone to the pain of sort of having a nice handwritten-looking font. So I got this. I said, wow, I must have gotten some nice letter from a friend. Wow. And then I opened it, and guess what? They don't know me at all. Yeah, they, they are asking me for money, which is not a bad thing. Uh, but so often you also get letters in the mail that have the same sort of look, and you look at them and you say, oh, it's sent to me, and then you look down at the address and it says, our neighbor at 204. <laughs> our neighbor? You don't know me? Yeah. True love knows the other. If we want to get our love across, we must know. And I think a simple application just off the top of my head that I didn't even write down is know people's names. <laughs> get to know one another's names. Um, we often, however, consider it our top priority, and in a good way, to be able to give one another the Bible's answers to people's questions. And I think that's wonderful. Let's study our Bibles. Let's get to know the scriptures so that we can give the Bible's answers. However, I want to suggest that equally important, if not more important, is that we are able to ask one another the, the Bible's questions. A hasty answer to a person's question about God or about life can be just as dangerous as a half-truth. If you don't know what people are asking, if you don't know what their struggle is truly, then to apply the Bible hastily can be actually very dangerous. Now, um, I, I want our church to be as famous for listening as we are for giving good news, right? Francis Schaeffer is a name some of you have probably heard. Uh, 
evangelical intellectual many decades ago. He started up a, a group in Switzerland called Labrie, and it was sort of a place where often there was sort of spiritual outcasts, people who were in, in danger of falling away from the faith. Often it was, it was people who were in ministry or children of, uh, God bless Jack in the back, children of people who were in ministry who were just close to, close to falling away from faith or who didn't have faith at all. And what he was famous for, one thing, is that he would meet with them. When they came into the committee, community, he would meet with them for 60 minutes. And for the first 55 minutes, you might expect, oh, 60 minutes. Okay, so he'll tell them things, talk to them for five minutes, and then just sort of preach a sermon directly for them for 55, right? It was the exact opposite. He would sit for them 55 minutes. He would ask questions. He would get to understand their story. He was also famous for when people shared the pains in their lives, he would just openly weep over what was happening to them. And this man had an incredibly powerful ministry. So many of you know his name, even though his ministry was not huge, but he was just so well known for this. Let's become famous for our ability to listen as well as our ability to give good, true answers. Second point. Researchers at the University of Kansas studied friendship. How, are, how do we make friends? How do we get to know one another, right? Uh, in an article titled, How Many Hours Does It Take to Make a Friend? Which I, I really like that. And they discovered that on average, it takes 50 hours, 50, to go from acquaintance to casual friend. It takes another 40 to, to become a real friend and 200 hours of face-to-face -face time with someone to become a true friend, someone you, a, a true confidant, someone you could share, you'd call anytime, right? So I did some math and I figured out that if you rely on 15 minutes of church chit-chat to make a true friend, it will take you seven years to make one real friend. That's if you go to church every single week, seven years. If you want to make a, a true friend, which is the sort of the next level, fifth, over 15 years. This is not enough, right? We need a separate place, and the point is not that you, we all need to know each other as well as we know our best friend. That's, it's impossible, look at this room, it'd be impossible, right? 200 hours with each of us, that'd be a whole lifetime. But we need a place where we are, we are utterly committed to a, a group of people, and where that sort of spiritual greenhouse can take effect. We see gospel fruit in one another's lives, and we can invest that time with people who are committing to us as well. And in fact, we have such a thing here at Parkview. They're called community groups. I lead them. And I just, so application point, would, point one would be join a community group if you're not in one and have those people that you can be committed to that where you can, all right, 200 hours, let's go, all right? Um, if you're already in a community group, consider before your next meeting, committing to knowing others in your group by getting to know something about each person in your group or maybe even just one person in your group that you didn't know before. True love must know one another. And in fact, God has poured his love into our hearts. And one way that we are called to pour out his love for others as disciples is to know others. Christ-like love knows others. The second aspect of God's love, Christ's love for his church, that we are to imitate as his disciples, is that Christ-like love gives itself away for others. Uh, you might say it hands itself over. Christ-like love hands itself over for others. And this one we see in verse 25, the verse that I actually already read for you. Wives, submit to your husbands, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Important word. For the husband, oh, I'm in the wrong place. Okay, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This word, gave himself up, is very significant. Uh, I was just actually in my personal reading, I was reading in, in Mark 3, 19, and it was talking about Judas Iscariot. 
right? And it says that Judas Iscariot gave up, and it actually says betrayed Jesus. And so what is this? Okay, here's, here's Jesus. He betrays himself on behalf of the church. In fact, that's, that would be the normal way that that word would work. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you what the word is. Paradidomia. It's, it's not important. What the point is, this word is not something you do to yourself. You don't hand yourself over. It's something you do with an enemy. You hand them over. It's something you do with someone you're not a friend to. It's something you do with you. And yet, this is what Jesus does to himself for his church. What could be less natural than giving away your life? And yet, this is not only, it's at the heart of our passage because it's at the heart of the gospel. In fact, this is basically the gospel in a nutshell, that Jesus hands himself over for us. And in fact, the other aspects of, of even this first one, to know one another, it doesn't even really make sense unless you have absorbed this point that Christ hands himself over, hands his love, hands his life over for us. In our flesh, in our sin, we don't care to know others. We care to be, everyone know me, you know, Facebook, selfie, I'm preening, give me some likes, give me some love, right, at the lowest cost I can get. But when Christ comes into our hearts, no longer do we just suck love in because he has hand his, handed his love over willfully, joyfully even, we can pour love out to others. Christ-like love gives itself away and hands itself over for others. And all of our love must be modeled after this same pattern of, of self-giving, self-donating love. Love hands itself over. A loving heart transformed by the gospel will produce this kind of love. It will hand itself over. If anyone has ever seen um, The Hunger Games, uh, you may, the, the illustration that comes to mind immediately is, so in this movie, uh, there's, this, there's this whole population of people who are subjugated and poor, and every year, I'm gonna forget, but uh, they have to pick, their, it's very morose, they have to pick a child who's gonna compete in this bloodthirsty battle um, for the entertainment of, these, of, of the wealthy in the land. And so there's this poor family, and uh, when the lottery comes time to pick this kid who's certainly going to go to their death, uh, this girl, little girl that gets picked. And Katniss Everdeen, who's sort of the hero of the film, stands up and says, no, 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 I volunteer. She says, I volunteer as tribute, because that's what they were called, tributes. And you just see, she says, I will not let my sister go to her death. I will go. Put, pick me instead. She hands herself over to the authorities to go. Uh, in the business world, you might think of, it's, it's so frequent. I've, I, so I heard this story about, it was in New York, big media firm, um, names I can't tell, but uh, a situation where sort of an underling made a huge mistake that was going to cost the, the company a lot of money. And so, she, you know, she had made this mistake, and so she came to work the next day and said, you know what, I, I just know I'm going to get fired. You know, and she, you know, I'm just going to, let me just box up my things and I'm going to go. And her boss came and said, no, what are you doing? She said, well, you were in the meeting, you know, you saw what happened. And he said, no, 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 you're fine, you're fine. She said, what happened? And he said, don't worry about it, I took care of it, I, I took the blame, I, you don't have to deal with it. And she said, what? What happened? You took the blame for it? That's not how business is supposed to work, right? The boss, you know, typically, you know, sort of, you think, in a negative sense, take all the credit for the good things that happen. If anything goes bad, my underling's heads will roll and I will sort of continue to ascend the social ladder. And so she said, why would you, why would you do that for me? Why would you take the blame? Why would you take the beating? Why would you lose face? 
And it kept pestering him, and eventually he said, I'll, okay, I'll tell you, finally, just because you've pestered me so much, I, I'm a Christian, and so I believe, you know, I should take more blame than I, you know, I should do this for you, I should hand myself over in this sense for you. And the next question she said was, where do you go to church? What, what kind of love, what kind of belief could produce that kind of love? It's Christ's belief. One way that I think this could apply to our life here in this church is that we need to perhaps rethink the way that we, cons- uh, the way that we think about the programming that we do. We have so many wonderful programs here at Parkview. Uh, I think about The Spot. I think about Faith Academy over here at East. And I want to just have a reminder that programming is a structure that is meant to produce, it's meant to enable love to grow, right? But it is not love itself. So it's, it's sort of like the trellis that the vine of love can grow up on, grow out of, and, and though it might give, uh, give structure to the way that love can flow to others, it's not meant to restrict it. So one, one simple application would be, when you get to know someone at church, at, in your community group, for instance, to, to not just see them on a Sunday night when you meet or whenever it is, but to go outside. Nothing makes me more confident about the health of a group and their love for one another than when I hear in my group, this shoots me over the moon, when I hear that people in my group are getting together outside of group to spend time together. It's one th- if, because I know that if I say as the leader of the group, hey, everyone, what we're going to do this week is pair up and we're going to go out to get coffee, it's kind of like, okay, he told us to, so I guess this, I love you, let's get coffee. You know, it's, it's not quite the same, but when you go outside of the structures, when you, meet, when you meet a family at the spot, you meet a kid and you end up meeting their family when they come and pick them up, and then you form a relationship with them, eat dinner with them, go outside of the structure, that's when love is... It, don't let the structure be a stricture. Don't let it be a restriction. Let it be what it's meant to be. Let it grow out, grow out of it. The second thing, and this is probably the most obvious, but it must be said, is that we just have to reject any kind of mercenary mindset in relationships that keeps accounts, that says, I've poured out this much love, but I'm not getting enough back, and therefore, this is the spirit of the age, Parkview Church, and this connects to the first point of, you know, we have to battle individualism. The same thing here. It is, we are being told that when you come to church and you see something you don't like, you hear a sermon you don't like, there's something about this ministry that's not quite up your alley. It's time to go. There's a lot of churches in town. I'll just find a new one, right? Um, there might be a time for that, but examine. We need to examine our hearts. We are, we are being taught that when... I get into a relationship, even marriage, and, you know, any relationship, and it starts to cost me more than it's benefiting me, and we realize that, we make that analysis, it's time to jet. No. True, of course there's a time to jet, and that's, but true love is willing to suffer, right? When people come into our group with needs, this is, I'm preaching myself right now. Do, we, do I find myself pulling away in my heart to, to make sure I don't get hurt, right? No. Let's see it as an opportunity for the Spirit to pour more love into our hearts, transforming us and transforming others by the love of Christ. Parkview, God has poured his love into our hearts. And one way that we are called to pour his love out for others is to hand ourselves over. 
to give ourselves away, to give our love, to give our life away for others. Christ-like love gives itself away for others. The third aspect that we see here is in verses 25 through 27, uh, if you'll look down with me, is that Christ-like love promotes holiness in others. Christ-like love promotes holiness in others. Uh, this might sound a little bit counterintuitive, but I hope you'll see it here. In verse 26 and 27, love the church and give himself up for her, that he might, this is a purpose statement, that he might sanctify her. That is, purify her whole, sanctify, you could be like, holy eyes, make more holy. Uh, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that is the gospel truth, so that he might, another purpose clause, he might present the church to himself in splendor, marvelously, spotlessly, like a, like a bride in the, in the perfect white gown, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what Christ's love has produced in his church, in us, if we know him. And therefore, it is also the, our, this means the aim of our love for one another also ought to be toward holiness, also ought to be toward looking more like God wanting to imitate him. Now, I'm not joking when I say, what is love? Baby, no. Anyone know that one? Rick Astley? Okay. Used to be a joke. It was a good one. Anyhow. Um, but it's crucial to get this question right. What is love? What is love? Because the meaning of this entire sermon, I, I referred to this earlier, but the meaning of this entire sermon will be lost if we settle for something less than what the Bible is calling love here. And to, to put it simply, love, it's, it's Christ-like love, is not just sort of fluffy. You know, it's not just sort of making others feel warm and happy. It's something more. It's also robust, right? It's beefy. It's, it has an aim. It has an agenda. Does that feel strange? It, it aims at holiness. It aims at Christ-likeness in others. Does it feel strange to, to hear me say love, true love, Christ-like love? The best love that there can be has an agenda? It, it might feel strange, but I want you to see all love has an agenda. All love. Because what is love, again? What is love? Love is to give, to love someone is to give them their, the, the thing that is best for them. To give them good. To give them what is ultimately good. And therefore, any, any kind of love, inevitably, every act of love has a vision what is good? What is good to give to someone? You have to, if someone thinks it's good to be kicked in the knee, well, then their love is going to be very painful almost all the time because if they're following through, yes. And yet, so all, all love has an aim. The question is, for us, what is it? And we want to say, as, as we read this passage, it produces a spotless, it produces holiness, it produces purity of heart. Most, most people walking around our city, love just means making people feel good about themselves, warm inside, happy. Now, that's not, that's not a bad thing, right? And yet there is more than that. There is a higher good than that. But in itself, it's insufficient yeah, because Christian love has a specific good in mind. We believe God is good. He is, there's nothing better. There's nothing we could give to, to anyone else that could be better than the gift of seeing savoring, obeying Jesus. Because to obey Jesus is true freedom. It is true life. It is true joy. It is the greatest adventure. It is the most wonderful thing. It is, and to serve anyone else, and this is why our love must, we must know what the agenda of our love is, to serve anyone else 
could not be deeper slavery. And so our love must aim. It must be Jesus-shaped. It must be holiness-producing. It must be... It must, it must lead people to see and savor the beauty of Jesus and imitate him, want to follow him. Anything less is not worthy of the name of love. Now, don't get me wrong, our love should be warm toward, toward others, right? It should make others, in a certain sense, feel good about themselves, right, as, as images of God. And yet warm love that doesn't point others to Jesus is, is not really a kindness, right? So we have to ask ourselves, as I said, what is our love oriented toward? What is our love pointed toward? We need to examine ourselves. And I want to warn you, this is the point in the sermon where it would be very tempting for you to stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about the person in the other aisle who needs to hear this. And I want to tell you, please do not do that. What is your love pointed toward? Is it pointed toward holiness in others? I'll never forget. Uh, I grew up for, for most of my life without a father in my life. And it was very painful. But one of the people that really stepped in was a guy. He didn't know Jesus, but he was a coach. I can't say his name because I didn't ask him. Um, but the two strongest memories that I have of him and the way that he loved me like a father when I didn't really have one were very different. The first one was during football practice. It may have been the same day, actually. But during football practice, I did a good job. Doesn't matter what I did. You know, I ran down, did a block, whatever it was. But that's not really what I remember. What I remember was when he, in front of the whole team, just said, oh, wow, that's what we need. Wow, it was just so encouraging. He lifted me up personally, intentionally in front of everyone. Oh, wow, I felt so good about myself in that moment. The other time that I remember feeling this was a time when I, it might have been the same day, I was in a football practice, and I just did the laziest, worst thing. I don't even remember what it was, and it, that wasn't the point. But what I remember is, is him just berating me in front of everyone. And I was, you know, I was a good player, and so, you know, I had, I just felt so, so, just horrible. I just wanted to crawl into a hole and die. And I just remember, I was just, you know, not having a father, I had no idea how to take this. And I just remember staring at the ground. I didn't want to look at him. And he said, no, look at me. Look, at, look in my eyes. Look at me. And if he had only done the former, if he had only been the guy who, who praised me in front of everyone, or if he had only done the latter and only been the guy who just, just whipped me when I needed it, that, that wouldn't have been really loving. To do both was what, and I don't think I would be who I am today if he hadn't, he hadn't really given me that. I, I praise God for that gift. Now, this is mean for us. We cannot be a church that says, you know what, we are going to be all orthodoxy and no love for others. That is not Christ-like love. We cannot also be a church that is just so relationally cozy, but refuses to tell people the truth about Jesus. And we don't have to pick. We can't pick. To pick one or the other would be easier, and it would not honor God. We must do both. We must do both. We must love each other enough to encourage one another, and we must love one another enough to tell each other hard things. There may be some of you who are not at all afraid to tell people hard things. Not at all. It's, it comes perfectly naturally. In fact, you may have a, a Bible verse for everyone in this room. <laughs> uh, but you, you have not learned to love. You, you, have not, you need to learn to smile. Katie has to remind me. Learned, you need to learn to smile, right? There may be some of you for whom it comes so naturally to smile. You're, you're just a warm person all the time. It's just wonderful. And yet, you, 
you need to have enough love in your hearts. You need to ask the Lord to come in and give you the courage in love to say some things to people who, who need to say them in your community group, in your life. To do either is, is not enough. God has poured his love into our hearts, right? Christ-like love is not cold. It's also not just fluffy, cotton candy kind of love. It's robust. It's thick. It's meaty, right? It's, it has a purpose. It has an aim to purify hearts, to encourage obedience, to give people the best good we could possibly give them, which at times may be a very warm hug, and at times it may be a hard word. God has poured his love into our hearts, Park Gene. One way we're called to pour out his love for others is to promote holiness in others. Christ-like love, and therefore our love, promotes holiness in others. This last thing that we see in verses 28 through 30 is that Christ-like love gets by giving. Christ-like love gets by giving, 28 through 30. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Christ-like love gets by giving. Jesus calls husbands to his radical idea that the best way to love themselves is to, is to give their love away. The best to love yourself is to love your wife is to love yourself, he says. In the same way, this is how Christ sees it. To love my church is to love my... It's, it's this very strange paradox. How, um, I thought about making this point. Christ-like love is selfish. You know, it's kind of selfless. Self, to, to love ourselves, what does this mean? Most of us, if, if you've been listening to this sermon, and I've been an effective communicator in, at, up to this point, I, I wouldn't be surprised if many of you feel like, wow, if I do everything he says, if I pour out this kind of love for others, I'm just going to be empty at the end, right? By the end of it, I'll feel burnt out. I'll feel like, oh, that's it, you know. And then I'll take a week off and refill or something. And no, Paul has preempted that concern with this very point. The way to be filled is to empty yourself. And this paradox is not just at the heart of this passage. I hope you see that this paradox is at the heart of the gospel. What could be less natural than pouring, yourself, pouring your life out for others? What could, be, what could be less natural than life that comes through death? He says, and I, I've set you up for this. At, at every point, Christ-like love does this for others. For others. Does X for others. Does, knows others gives itself for others, for others. And yet here he sublimates that entire point and says, no, the, the whole problem actually is that you have this category of other. And what you need to see is that you are so connected with one another to, to love the person in the seat next to you who you might not even know their name is to love yourself. Because we are one body. It's not that we must love others but that we must identify so deeply with our fellow people, the people sitting next to you, that loving them feels the same as loving yourself. And Paul knew I would have tr trouble explaining this, so he gave me a nice metaphor right in the text. He says, because we're members of one another. You could say, you know, Paul here is saying, imagine the church. It's like a big body. It's like my, and here is one person, and here's, here's another person, is a hand and a foot, and they all, you work together, and imagine, Imagine if the kidney said, you know what, I'm getting enough 
blood, but I'm not sure I'm getting enough blood, so I'm going to keep all the blood that I get. I'm just going to keep it. I know the liver needs some over here, but I'm just going to keep it because I'm not sure if the heart is going to be send me some more blood, and so I'm just going to keep it. Would that be a smart move for the kidney? No. He's saying in the same way, if we see, okay, I've got some love from God, I'm feeling fulfilled, I'm feeling affirmed, and yet I see others who need it, but I'm not sure I'm going to get more, so I'll keep it. No, he says, that would be to, to, when we see goodness in others, it is our duty, it is our joy to celebrate with them. When we see, when there's sin in another person and you see it, to ignore it or, or push it off and say, oh, that's their problem, that's the problem of the other person, would be like the pancreas saying, oh, I heard the liver has cancer. Bummer for the liver. I'm glad that won't affect me. It's just nonsensical. He says we are so oriented to, connected to each other, that when one of us is suffering, it's everyone's problem, right? Therefore, we would never really think in the category of my life, my things, my money, my, my love, my time. This is, this is how connected he envisions us being to one another. I imagine a thermostat. Like in, in our house, it was about 65 this morning because it's been cold and we didn't turn the heat on. But if we had turned the heat on, how does the heat get kicked on? It's actually not until it, it, until it actually lowers, until it loses heat, that it gets filled up again. And I wonder if the reason that we aren't experiencing the love of God is because we've been unwilling to pour ourselves out to the point where, where God says, yes, let me pour in some more. Um, not in a legalistic way, not in a, but I wonder if that, if that may be the case in some of our lives. That, that's something I felt this morning myself. Now, as I said, if, if you are walking away from this sermon feeling like I've just asked you to muster up love for, for the last 30 minutes, then I, I have not done my job as a pastor. Uh, Katie, Katie recently showed me a video. It was Paul, Paul McCartney and James Corden. They do this thing where it's called carpool karaoke, and they drive around. They're driving around Liverpool. He's a Beatle, right? And he's so famous. And they sing the songs in the car. Well, at one point, Paul McCartney told the story of how he got the inspiration for the song, Let It Be. You know, Mother Mary comes to me, singing words of wisdom, let it be. And um, at the end of it, James Corden is just, he's crying. He's weeping. And he says, you know, it's crazy. The same message, you were, the message of love for others, giving our love to others, that you were singing about 50, 60 years ago is so relevant today. And he's, he's just crying, you know. And... And he said, these, James Corden said, that's the greatest story I've ever heard. And it's, it's a great video, and I commend it to you, and it's, it's so wonderful, it's joyful to see him. And yet, you just want to shake him and say, really? Friends, there's a better story. This love isn't up to you. The good news is not that if we love one another enough, the world will be changed. That is, that is to miss the point completely. The good news is that our Savior has loved us literally to death. He lost love on the cross. Can you imagine? Everyone knows that the, the amount of pain that you experience in losing a relationship is, is sort of equivalent to how much time, how much, all, all that you've invested in this. How long has the Father known the Son? How long? And that's what he was willing to lose on the cross for you. And he died to death. And yet he was raised, and he sent the Spirit with that same love into your heart. So you don't have to muster up this love, but simply to pour it out. And when you pour it out, maybe even to the point of death, you can be sure 
that though it might take you to death, that love will never end. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. We praise you that our love is not up to us. Our love is not something that we must yearn within ourselves to simply come up with. Lord, I even feel that in myself as I, as I preach. But that you have come by your spirit, poured out so much love into our hearts, and you have a purpose for that love. You have an aim for that love. Lord, we praise you for that. I pray that you would show us what you want to do with that love, that we would know one another, we would pour that love out for others, that we would serve one another with the kind of love with which you have served us. Thank you, Lord, for never asking us to do something that you have not given us the power to do or something that you haven't done yourself. We praise you that you are that kind of Savior. We pray all this in your name. Amen.